Hello and welcome to v Dundee. We're an international design museum showcasing the brilliance of Scottish creativity and the best of design from around the world. Hello, I'm Meredith Moore and I'm one of the curators at v Dundee. I've been working on our Mary Quant exhibition, which we are thrilled to have been able to open at long last after the museum had to be closed during the lockdown. It was really sad to have to stop the installation of the show and to postpone or cancel all of the great talks and events that we had planned. But we are so pleased now to be able to really celebrate this brilliant exhibition about a truly iconic fashion designer. So today I have the pleasure of talking to Heather Tilbury Phillips, who was one of the six directors of Mary Quant Limited in the 1970s with direct responsibility for marketing and PR on a global scale. She's also been a trusted advisor to the curatorial team at the V&A in London as they curated and designed the exhibition. And more recently, she's also been helping us to prepare the exhibition for here in Dundee. Following on from her work for Mary Quant, Heather ran a London-based communications consultancy for almost three decades specialising in handling accounts in the arts, fashion, retail, textiles and mail order fields. And her firm was responsible for the marketing and PR for various high profile brands and events, including the relaunches of Charlie and Natural Wonder Cosmetics for Revlon, the launch of Country Living magazine, and also closer to home here in Scotland, the relaunch of Harris Tweed. So, Heather, hello, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me today. Hello, it's great to be here. (laughs) Um, So I suppose, first of all, um, can you just explain how you came to work for Mary Quant and what your role entailed? Well, I first met Mary Quant and her husband, Alexander Plunk Green, in 1967, when I joined Kangle, the Hattonbury and Seatbelt Company, where I was working as their publicity manager. Kangle had the license for Mary Quant Berries. In early 1970, Mary invited me to go and work with them at their offices in Ive Street in Chelsea and be responsible for all aspects of promotion for Mary herself, the Quant brand, the Ginger Group range, and liaison with the licensees, like the cosmetics, accessories, tights and hosiery, etc. That must have been such a kind of exciting time for you in your career. And I just wonder if you can tell us, you know, what was it like going to work for Mary Quant and being part of her team? And, you know, what kind of personality was she? And... Was, was she kind of different to other fashion brands that you might have had experience of before? Well, as you can imagine, it was extraordinarily exciting. Every day was different. It was challenging, hard work, hectic, stimulating, but I think above all, enormous fun. 
we had in interconnecting offices. So Mary or Alexander would be in and out all the time, bouncing ideas, asking for opinions, making suggestions, and then conveying trust and confidence so that we could all expedite exactly what Mary wanted. She had very clear ideas. She was determined and would be pretty strong with the staff and also with the licensees, who very often said to her, oh, I'm not sure that's possible. And she would look at them under her lashes and say, I'm sure you'll find a way. <laughs> and of course they did, because she was absolutely right. <laughs> so she was quite a sort of force to be reckoned with then. Absolutely. <laughs> and did you find, um, you know, one of the things that's explored in the exhibition is um, the way that the staff for Mary Quant, they all almost became part of the brand, you know, and they had the clothes and they had the look. And did you kind of, did you fit into that as well? And what, what was that like? Well, I hope so. I think because we were a surprisingly small team, at Ive Street, and we all felt like family. So there was an enormous personal involvement. So we subconsciously, as well as practically, adopted Mary and Alexander's leadership, and of course, Archie McNair, who was the chair of the board, and he was responsible for the business side. So he would be exercising control over expenditure, cash flow, all the business side, which of course was crucially important and inherent part of the company's success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, you've, you've been, you obviously know Mary Quant very well, and you've been an advisor on this exhibition. Um, really helping to make sure that the show itself presents um, Mary and her work in a really authentic way. So that that's everything from the way that the curators have kind of told the story to the colour palette that the designers have, have chosen and worked with. And I just wonder, you know, that must have been an amazing experience and, and also quite close to your heart as well. And I just wonder how you've Found the process and whether you think the show is a is a good tribute to Mary. Well, it was an immense privilege working with the entire curatorial team, both at the V&A in London and indeed in Dundee. Everybody has been so enthusiastic, intuitively understanding why and how Mary developed as she did. You've all been so knowledgeable creative and imaginative in portraying the whole concept of what Mary achieved, as well as the garments and the accessories, and displaying them at such advantage. And in Dundee, the show will be particularly spectacular, as all will be on one level, making such a great use of the space and in that magnificent building, it will really feature all the exhibits effectively. Can't wait. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, 
I mean, it's quite amazing, really, that it's it's been such a long time since there's been an exhibition about Mary Quant. You know, she's such a famous name in um, in fashion, and yet it's um, it, it's surprising that we haven't had a show like this before. Well, indeed, the last exhibition which um, I was I had the privilege of being involved with was in 1973-1974 at what was then the London Museum before it became that marvellous Museum of London. Although, of course, Mary's garments have been included in a number of other exhibitions all over the world, not least the 60s exhibition at the V&A in London in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's just, it's a great moment to focus on on her again. Um, so maybe I should, I should now ask you some, some questions about Mary Quant herself and um, we can get into, try and get into the mindset a little bit. So she, you know, she's said to have really captured the spirit of the 1960s. And I just wonder if you can tell us what it is you think it is about that time that she really captured and why she was so of the moment? Well, after the post-war austerity of the 50s, there was a great feeling of optimism and opportunity developing with the breaking down of barriers, rules, and the inspiration which came from the inherent I-could-do-that feeling Younger women in particular understood that exuberance. They no longer wanted to dress like their mothers, but they wanted clothes that enabled them to run, jump on a bus, dance, and also in wildly different and sometimes clashing colours and styles that provided a great sense of freedom. It seemed that suddenly writers, actors, Photographers, models, designers, painters, musicians, media, all the creative arts were experimenting and achieving impact in their own entirely different ways. And Mary's creative and exciting clothes helped to drive that mood. I see, right. And in the exhibition, the you know, one of the first things that you encounter is just brilliant footage of Mary's um, shop in Chelsea, uh, which was called Bazaar, which really seems to have been a kind of retail experience unlike any other. Um, you know, it's a very new type of shop and, and I suppose also chiming in with that very particular moment in time. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about it and, and why it was so different? Well, when it opened in 1955, it quickly became the focus of the Chelsea set. Part of swinging London, the King's Road was the place to go, to be seen, and customers flocked to look at the ever-changing window displays. They didn't stay for a week at a time, but changed much more frequently, which was very unusual at that time. And they were often rather shocking. And the different clothes, which could be seen inside the shop, were just spectacular. It was like a party. Often debutantes and duchesses would be choosing the very same dresses as shop girls 
all wanting a bit of Mary's special magic. The clothes were also beautifully made, the fabrics of great quality, yet they were affordable and everything sold out so quickly. So Mary would often work all night cutting out new styles whilst the seamstresses were madly making up garments to keep up with demand. It was very hand to mouth <laughs> in those days as they had to sell the garments to have enough money to buy more fabric for the next lot. Yeah, it just sounds sounds amazing. And, and she had these incredible window displays as well, didn't she? Yes, she did. And it was like a party. People were coming and, and going all the time. And businessmen it, with their rolled umbrellas and bowler hats would shake their umbrellas because they thought it was all so shocking. <laughs> How how times have changed. <laughs> I mean, in, in the exhibition, uh, there's also there's quite a big focus on um, Mary Quant's uh, home dressmaking patterns, um, which, you know, me meant that for the price of a magazine and just some fabric, ordinary people would be able to sew a Mary Quant dress um, from their own home. Um, and it's so interesting that these patterns... And also later on, you know, some of her less expensive collections, like her Ginger Group collection, you know, it, it really did democratise fashion and make it more accessible to people. Kind of like what you were saying about the, the debutantes wanting the same dresses as the shop girls. And I, I just, you know, do you, do you think that she did really care about more people having access to fashion? Mary's first job after she left Goldsmiths College was working for a couture milliner called Eric, very well known, making hats which might actually only be worn once. And Mary felt this was completely wrong. She felt so strongly that fashion should be for everyone. So she not only introduced the Ginger Group collection, which sold all over the country and was exported globally. But as you rightly say, she teamed up with Butterick, who distributed paper patterns. And in those days, of course, sewing was still taught at school. So most people had access to sewing machines or they hemmed things by hand and they could buy a pattern. They could make the skirt the length that suited them. They could go out and buy Liberty prints or wonderful fabrics, even cheap and cheerful cottons, and they could make the styles to suit and fit them, which gave them a tremendous opportunity of wearing up-to-date, of-the-moment, Mary Quant dresses, garments, and quite literally hundreds of thousands of patterns were sold. And it was the most wonderful way of democratising fashion. Yeah, and, and isn't it true that she almost started out herself doing the same thing? You know, she would buy these patterns and she would adapt them into the kind of fashion she wanted to see. That kind of makes sense. Absolutely, because she didn't until after she'd left Goldsmiths 
learn pattern cutting. So she needed those paper patterns as a template. And she'd chop bits out, add bits on, put two together um, to make the sort of styles that became her hallmark. Yeah, and I think it's just so interesting, I suppose, maybe thinking about now and how, you know, you might expect a fashion designer to have such strong opinions about exactly how an outfit should be put together, whereas Mary seems to have had a much more flexible approach and, you know, allowing people to have a sense of their own individuality within the clothes that she designed. Well, she felt that people's personality should shine through and therefore her designs were such that they could add a bit or subtract a bit and of course um, it's what really generated all the interest in the miniskirt. Yes so I wanted to ask you about the miniskirt so She's so famous for, you know, inventing the miniskirt, um, whether or not she invented it. Um, I just, can you tell us about the miniskirt and how this relates to Mary Quant and, and why, why she loved minis so much? Well, Mary herself still has fabulous legs <laughs> and she wore her skirts shorter and shorter. But it, she always said it was her customers who said, I want mine shorter still. And to start off with, because she was very much aware of modesty, she often designed, designed knickerbockers or shorts or even like a leotard to go underneath until in the end she bullied hosiery manufacturers who at that time were probably making black, white and pink tights for maybe on stage, theatrical performances, and she asked them to make tights in colours that either contrasted or matched or, or even clashed with the garments that were in her current shops. And so it was tights, I think, that was almost, that were almost complementary to enabling the minister skirt to get higher and higher because you couldn't really wear stockings and suspenders on the tube. <laughs> you have to be a bit more modest than that. I mean, where mini skirt? I suppose it's hard to imagine now when mini skirts are everywhere. But was were they genuinely really quite a shocking thing to wear as a, a young woman in London at, at that particular moment? Absolutely. And people really did tut and frown and criticise. Um, but the other thing that was important about the proportions with the mini was you did not wear them with heels. You wore them with flats. So the early ballet pumps, if you like, made a, such a difference. And it also made that freedom of movement. Um, and girls just flourished, loved it, and it was all part 
of that sparkling 60s movement. That just, it must have been such a, an exciting time to have been able to buy Mary Quant's um, outfits and just have the chance to express yourself in such a, a new way. Um, and I wanted to also ask you, Heather, about the fact that Mary was really quite experimental um, in the way that she was thinking about new materials like Jersey and PVC and the fact that she was working with lots of British manufacturers and um, sometimes also when they were they might have been struggling um, and I, I wondered if that that was also quite unique at the time and, and whether there are particular collaborations that you thought were really successful. She was always very keen on working with British manufacturers wherever she possibly could. And I think perhaps one of the biggest and, and uh, most exciting trends she initiated was the use of men's fabrics, like worsted suitings, um, sometimes Harris tweed, asking them to be woven in colors that she wanted and making dresses. There's a very famous shot of Mary and Alexander together. She's wearing men's striped suiting in a lovely pinafore dress, and it looks so terrific. So she was very inventive, very um, unusual in what she was choosing to make her garments from. And the jersey fabric that you mentioned, which was a bonded jersey, gave structure to the garments so that they maintained their shape, irrespective of whether you were wearing them at work or going on to a party or, or club in the evening and dancing. And that was the other thing about her garment. She wanted them to be multi-purpose. You could wear them almost on any occasion with different accessories. Maybe you put black polar neck sweater underneath and then you'd go out directly in the evening and put a white silk shirt underneath. So it was the introduction of flexibility, value for money, perceiving that quality was so important because it gave that versatility. Yes, and I think there are some of her very favourite jersey dresses in the show, aren't there? The ones that she loved to wear herself. And they are in such wonderful colours, unusual shades like mustard, orange. Um, they weren't colours that would normally put, be put together. Prune and mustard were great favourites of hers. <laughs> And, um, and can you tell us a bit about her approach to marketing, um, which I suppose is, is also one of your specialisms? Um, you know, she's very well known for the signature Daisy logo, um, and she was so kind of um, trailblazing in that she was um, also branching out into products like underwear and makeup. Um, and just, just explain to us kind of that, that approach of Mary's to marketing. I think it's important to remember that of the three founding directors of Mary Quant Limited, Mary obviously had the imagination, the genius for design. Alexander, her husband, had this 
inherent ability to perceive how to project and market her ideas. And then Archie McNair, whom I mentioned earlier, was, of course, the businessman who had trained as a lawyer. So between them, they were a holistic triumvirate who were able to project Mary Quant's work throughout the world. And the design of the Mary Quant daisy, almost always in black and white, was an absolute inspiration because it was such a simple shape and it appeared on everything that she produced. It was so strong, so stark, so simple that it could be seen right across a department store's floor or hanging on a swing ticket on a box of fragrance or cosmetics and it became probably one of the earliest iconic logos to be used throughout the fashion world. Yeah, absolutely. You can't see that logo and not think Mary Quant. <laughs> um, I also wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about her fashion shows and also her fashion shoots, um, because again, these were so different to the norm. Um, e even just the way she, she chose her models and the way she works with them. Um, can you just tell us what was kind of different about her approach to all of this? Oh, the fashion shows. Well, it really started probably at the very, very beginning of the 60s when she first went to New York and took them by storm. And she showed in a completely different way from the accepted form of models walking very calmly, maybe doing a slow turn so people could see the garments. This was different. The models, probably only four or five of them maximum, would dance down the middle of a space and they would be um, leaping up and down. They would be spinning. Very often she used dancers or girls that had trained as dancers who wanted to become models. And so, of course, they were extremely active, and it would be to jazz music or pop of the time, rock. And it took the world by storm. And, of course, it set a trend that was followed everywhere. And I so remember the shows... All our press shows were almost always at breakfast time because, of course, in those days, the photographers needed to take their film and get it back to their newspapers. The Standard in London, for instance, would publish after lunch. So they wanted the shots as quickly as possible. And there would be a barrage of photographers waiting to see breathlessly what was being shown at that time. And she wanted and chose models who were not just beautiful, but interesting and intelligent, because she wanted them to understand what she was trying to project. And they would put their own personalities on. So also with fashion shoots, 
the models themselves became so crucial. You've only got to think of Jean Shrimpton and Twiggy, for instance, how they became synonymous with what Mary was doing. And they put their own handwriting on how they showed the garments. And of course, she was working with people like Bailey, Duffy, Donovan, Clive, Arrowsmith, all those top, top photographers at the time who were breaking all the rules, showing things quite differently. And of course, those photographs have become masterpieces. Yes, and, and we can see a lot of them in the exhibition as well, um, often teamed up with the with the outfits. So that's, you know, a really, a really good um, reason to come to see the exhibition. Absolutely. And you can have that marvellously nostalgic feeling of, oh, I remember that at the time. I remember wearing it and going to a party or function or whatever. And also, they still have that strong appeal to the young of today, which is endearing and enduring. Absolutely. Um, thinking about, you know, I suppose young people today, um, and and maybe people that are getting interested in Mary Quant. Um, I think it's it's interesting that Mary she never openly identified as a feminist or, or a feminist designer, but you know she did create a, a really brand new bold look for a modern woman, and she does obviously stand out as a trailblazing female designer in a very male dominated world at that time. I just wonder, you know, do you think she was a, a feminist? Or did she at least act like a feminist? <laughs> um, she had a deep-rooted work ethic. It was inherited from her school teacher parents. And she wouldn't and couldn't accept women couldn't do what they wanted as long as they were prepared to do whatever was necessary to make it happen. She was always determined to find a way through. And as such, it inspired everyone around her, people she came in contact with, to believe that they could do it too. So that was wonderfully empowering. I can't think of a better expression of feminism back in the late 60s and early 70s that she represented. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, because obviously this, this exhibition covers as much as it can of, of Mary Quant's incredible career and her style, but there are obviously things that the exhibition doesn't quite manage to cover. So it makes sense to maybe ask you about a few of those things now. Um, one of the things that there isn't really enough space to go into is, is Mary's move into the interior design market in the 70s and, and also into the 80s. Um, are you able just to tell us a bit about this and, and whether you think Mary did create essentially a, a lifestyle brand, maybe for the first time? Mary's design garments had become absolutely global. And she was approached by what was then ICI Fibres to try and stimulate the home interiors market. 
she felt that so many of her previous customers were moving on. They had their own homes. It might be a college room, it might be a bed sit, it might be um, a house in the suburbs. And they were turning to looking at ways of expressing their individuality in interiors in the same way that she had done with fashion back in the late 50s and 60s. So she persuaded the bedwear manufacturers to make deep dark sheets, cases, duvet covers, wallpapers, paints, all the sort of basic things to start making homes look as fashionable as garments. And it was particularly the those making sheets and duvet covers that she would say to, but I don't want pastel pink or pale blue or primrose. I want navy, strong red, deep green, brown. And they say, you can't do that. The dye will run. So she would say to them, find a way of ensuring it doesn't run. And sure enough, they did. And we had those wonderfully moody colours. Gingham wallpaper, for instance. Deep navy blue paint. That had always been an impossibility. But she insisted, and of course, it becomes history. And so from there, she went into carpets, drapes, kitchenware, all sorts of things for the interior, while still carrying on with, of course, her fashion side. It's amazing, isn't it? Just the way she was able to see so clearly that there was a, a gap for this and, and just having the confidence to shake, shake that up in the same way that she had with, with the fashion industry too. Well, she even got into wine at one point and such was the confidence of her customer base that they would trust her judgment. And we had the most wonderful, very small, but very select, excellent wines at really good prices, which comes back to this democratization of fashion style interiors. And she herself, knew what she wanted, and she had the confidence to pass that on. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing I wanted to just ask you about is the is the kind of huge international impact of Mary Quant, which is touched on in the exhibition, but is, you know, there is quite a big focus on Britain and on, on London, and, and I just wonder if you could tell us a bit about that the, the importance of the, the internationalism of the Mary Quant brand. In the early days, she went to New York in, for the first time, I think, in 1959. And even at that stage, they were following London to see what was coming up and how it could impact on the market there. By the early 60s, she'd um, set up 
a very strong agreement with J.C. Penny and also Puritan fashions, which meant that she was designing for shops, stores, and the mail order business, which spread through all the Americas. Her own ginger group collection, which was not only entirely successful here in the UK, with shops all over the country, but also throughout Europe, even stretching eventually to Australia and New Zealand, where she became incredibly well-respected and well-known. And of course, subsequently, the products, particularly the home interest and cosmetics, which were hugely popular, were selling throughout Japan. So it really did become quite early on a global business. And in that too, she was a trendsetter. And did it, because obviously that's that's a long way from where she started in her in her boutique in Chelsea. And you know, do you feel that even by the time she'd got to that level of success and acclaim that she was still kind of still interested in the same things fundamentally? She always said that she got bored very quickly, <laughs> which is why as soon as she'd got one collection out of the way, she was on to the next. And curiosity was one of the words she always used. She was fascinated by different things. She would always see the most unusual aspects that could be utilised in one way or another. So that with that basic work ethic, her fundamental integrity of determination to stay true to herself, I think was part of that fundamental legacy, which she carries through now, even to the youth of today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... um... Just probably one last last question, really, which which is thinking about um, more about today. Um, at VNA Dundee, we've we've created a new film to become part of the exhibition, which interviews um, three young female designers who are working today. And I suppose, like Quant back uh, in the sixties, they're having to forge their own paths um, with all the challenges of of today's fashion world and all that brings. And we've chosen these particular designers because we think, you know, they've they've almost got an approach that is like Mary Quant. Um, and they, they, they say they've been inspired by her. And I just wonder what you think the kind of main things that, that Mary Quant has given to the fashion industry and what her legacy is. One of the most rewarding things I found was hiding in a corner at the exhibition at the V&A in London and listening to what people were saying. And they were either expressing memories of what life was like um, back in the 60s and 70s, or the younger people were saying how much they really would love to wear that today. And I think that really 
sums it up that for designers working today, never ever throw off the old without actually taking the values and building it, evolving it for the future. Absolutely. And there's there's so much about her approaches to well her and her 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 um the other partners, you know, their approach to marketing of fashion and licensing, all these things that we almost take for granted now, which she which they were doing for the very first time. Um and you you know you can't deny the impact of those things on today's fashion world. Well it's that nothing is new today. And Mary delved back. She had great respect for the couturiers of the past, even though she felt that the making of garments for the few was not the right way forward, which is why she so wanted everybody to be able to afford her designs. And that concept of taking individual ideas and amalgamating them into all the technological breakthroughs that there are now. Think about the way fabrics have changed and the performance of textiles overall. And that is part of future fashion that Mary is so proud of having been part of yeah I think um that's such a kind of fitting place to uh, end our our conversation um just thank you so much Heather I've had such fun chatting to you uh, just now and just hearing all of your your brilliant insights into Mary's work and just the fact that you have that that personal connection to her and and know first firsthand what her approaches were and, and just what it was like to work with her um so I hope very much hope that this conversation might have whetted some appetites to come and see the exhibition uh in the museum <laughs> I think that must be a must absolutely so um the Mary Quant exhibition is open now and it runs until the 17th of January 2021 um and if you want to come and see the exhibition you just need to remember that you now need to book a time slot before you visit. Um, but thank you again so much, Heather, for, for speaking with me today. Thank you. It's been great fun. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can find more stories and resources on our website at vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee. That's vam.ac.uk dot uk forward slash dundee